The Athletic. Totally Football Show. Today, Halloween horror for Liverpool as Gomez leaves generous gifts for their visitors. Terror for United players as Harry Maguire pops up behind them while it's a frightening Brighton win for Chelsea as Graham Potter gets X-rated. All that plus Blair Witch-esque scenes at the Emirates as a group of strangers stuck together in the forest get taken apart. Stand by to hear some chattering in this Totally Football Show. Thirty-first of October. Happy Halloween, listener. I've got in front of me the distinctly unhorrifying spectacle of uh, Daniel Story, Adrian Clark, and joining us today, Ahmed Shubal. Hi, everyone. Good morning. Hello. Oh, excellent. You all had a good weekend. As good a weekend as you can have. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Really, as yeah. good a weekend as you can have. <laughs> wow, that's <laughs> yeah. a big statement. Wow. That's huge. What were Talk you doing? Were you, were you hanging out with Tony Woodcock and Little Sims? <laughs> no, no, not as lucky as some of you guys. Uh, had the joy of um, watching the classic that was Tottenham Bournemouth. Uh, we'll talk a bit, more, a bit more about that later. But no, I mean, I cover football for a living. This is the dream, you know. Well, um, that's true. I can't, I can't really complain. No, indeed not. Nice bit of perspective there, Ahmed. And uh, of course, one of us was sharing uh, studio space with Little, Little Sims and, and Tony Woodcock. And that was you, Adrian Clark. Yeah, it was quite quite the gear change on the on the breakdown live uh, match day show yesterday. But I loved it. Um, both tremendous guests, and mm. yeah, it, it turned out nice the game as well. So yeah, it was a it was a good Sunday. I was at the Hawthorns on Saturday mm-hmm. to see Carlos Corbran's first match in charge of them, and and they were terrible. <laughs> he has got his work cut out. But yeah, it was a it was a busy old weekend. Busy weekend then, and a busy morning for you today because you've got the handbrake off podcast waiting for you as soon as we've wrung every drop of punditry out of you in the course Absolutely. of today's totally all right turned out nice then arsenal nottingham forest we'll get onto that in a second get daniel's reaction to that take the headlines though from the weekend the top four all won chelsea slipped to sixth after graham potter had a date with his ex which went about as well as they usually do Liverpool are now the go-to opponents for teams in the bottom three. They lost again, this time at home to Leeds. Leeds, who with Palace, were the only teams in the bottom half of the table to win. Liverpool are now five points from the drop and eight from the Champions League positions. Leicester are back in the bottom three after defeat to City. And Forest are back in last place after shipping five at the Emirates. We're going to begin with Sunday afternoon's top V bottom clash at that North London ground. It was not on TV, but Adrian, you were there in pretty illustrious company to see the Gunners reclaiming top spot in the table. Come on then, what's your big take from this? (laughs) Well, Reese Nelson was the star of the show, the unexpected hero, I guess, because he didn't didn't feature in the Europa League. We'd not seen a lot of him for, for quite a long time. He was the original wonder kid, really, at Arsenal. When, it, when I was working there a number of years ago, and you always sort of ask, if you see someone in the academy, you always ask, Who, who's the next one coming through? And, and all I kept hearing was Reese Nelson. I didn't hear about Saka. I didn't necessarily hear about Smith Rowe. It was Reese Nelson this, Reese Nelson that. And, and he's had opportunities. And he's done well, but maybe not well enough to stay in the team. But yeah, it felt like a breakthrough game for him. It really did, to, to come on and score... Scored two goals to create another one as well. I was really, really pleased for him. And uh, yeah, it it could be the moment that, that resurrects his Arsenal career. Because as we all know, there's not a lot of depth around Saka and Martinelli out wide, or that's the perception anyway. Well, Nelson went and showed that in Premier League terms, he, he can deliver. Interesting. It's his first Premier League appearance since the opening day of last season. He's been on loan at Feyenoord in the meantime. As you say, there is this perception that there's a lack of depth for us. In fact, Daniel, you were writing about this, about how the lack of quality in the reserves might be the thing that costs the Gunners this season and and pointing to the performance Thursday night when a lot of those reserves featured in the 2-0 defeat against uh, PSV. Yeah, I mean, I think pretty generally the only position in Arsenal's team for which there is any serious competition um, is at left-back between Kieran 
Tierney and, and Alexander and Zinchenko and Tierney has a record of being injured quite a bit and Zinchenko's been injured quite a bit this season so um, that competition almost sort of cancels itself out and and yes Thursday was disappointing because they were really they were bullied by uh, by PSV uh, there were players in that team who I thought probably were thinking that they had a point to prove and didn't quite do it uh, Lakonga was the, the obvious example but as Adrian says if, if you kind of <laughs> find a freebie at the back of the cupboard that you'd forgotten about in Reese Nelson, it, it really helps because it gives everything a completely different complexion. Uh, it suggests that there, if there is competition for places from the academy, if not necessarily from the players they've brought in. So five goals and an enormously one-sided game looking at the figures. As I say, this game wasn't on TV, so rely on you for, mm. for um, the bigger picture here, Adrian. 19 more shots Arsenal had than Forrest. It was the biggest shot differential between two teams in a Premier League game this season. Yeah, that's a big stat, isn't it? It's It was a strange game because we came in at halftime feeling a little bit flat about Arsenal's performance. It started brilliantly, the first 15 minutes, outstanding. You thought, oh, they're just going to blow Nottingham Forest away. Martinelli scored with a diving header. And, and then it went a little bit stale. Forrest offered nothing, but Arsenal lacked it lacked sort of energy and invention. Second half, though, it was absolute one-way traffic. They came out of the blocks right from the from the get-go. Stats-wise, second half shots fourteen to one, eight shots on target to Forrest one, and and they were lucky to get one shot. Really, they didn't they didn't offer very much at all in the game. Not in Forrest. It was a really sort of limp display from them. Not not a lot of determination. Not a lot of compactness at all about them. Arsenal just kept on creating big chances. And big chances are quite hard to create. But in this game, Arsenal had, statistically, according to our friends at Opta, five big chances in the second half, mm. um, which, which, which tells the story, really. The other narrative is Gabriel Jesus. Okay, It's another game where Gabriel Jesus doesn't score a goal. Ultimately, it doesn't matter if others are chipping in, but he missed a few. He had seven shots. Um, but he played very well. Two assists. I think he created four four chances. Um, he was he was a menace again. So, so I think if you start to hear ah oh, Gabriel Jesus not scoring goals, is he right. is he a flop? I wouldn't I wouldn't buy into that talk. I think he offers a lot more than just goals. Well, that's a relief. Bukayo Saka <laughs> though, how how big an injury is that going to be? Arteta didn't seem that worried actually afterwards. I was a, I was a bit nervous because he tried to play on and you could see he just couldn't run. He was limping quite badly. I think it was an impact uh, injury on his ankle. Um, so he tried to run it off, couldn't. But Mikel Arteta afterwards when he was quizzed basically said, I'm not that worried. I, th- I, think, it, I think it's going to be okay. So that's a relief because obviously um, he probably wouldn't have played against Zurich on Thursday anyway. It's all about that Chelsea game, isn't it? Um, lunchtime on Sunday. So, um, so yeah, hopefully it'll be fine. Mm. Chelsea-Arsenal next Sunday. That one, I hope, is going to be televised. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Forrest, Dan, how, how does this rank among this season's horror shows? Well, I mean, this isn't going to define Forrest's season, obviously. There is an issue about um, these kind of limp performances. They did it at Newcastle. They did it at Manchester City. They did it against Arsenal now. They are three of the better teams in the league this season and Forest aren't one of those, so maybe that's no surprise. But there's definitely an issue about conceding goals in clusters. I can't remember the exact numbers, but it's something like three in nine minutes against Fulham, three in seven minutes against Bournemouth, three in 11 minutes against Arsenal. And they also conceded you know, in clusters in other games as well, certainly against Leicester, for example. Why does that happen, Adrian? Why, why would I mean, is that a tactical thing or is it just that the heads go... I think that's a mentality thing. Yeah, I do. I think it's uh, it, it's probably something that happens to teams that don't know each other very well, <laughs> people that are getting to know one another, because you haven't built up that, that team spirit, have you? Obviously, at the back and in front, they have with Cook and McKenna and Yates. They've got that axis, which and all three were magnificent against Liverpool. And you thought, well, that was a team effort. That was a collective thing. And you expect that to become the norm. But, but it's how you react to disappointments in football that often defines how good a team you are. And, and I think that teams generally react better to disappointments when there's more spirit about them. And clearly, Forrest aren't going to have as much spirit and team, you know, team unity 
as anyone else in the Premier League because you know barely remember each other's names. Mm. So um, so I think that's I think that's the case there. Um, tactically, I think uh, I don't know whether it was the tactics or the application of the players, but they they really didn't do anything to stop Arsenal. Thomas Partey, for example just had the freedom of the entire midfield because the three Forest midfielders just sat on the toes of the central defenders. Gibbs, White and Lingard didn't work hard enough to close him down. It was, yeah, it was a really meek effort from Forest fans. And I'll tell you what, I would say half of them um, had left the ground long before the end of the game. Ooh. Brutal, Adrian. Brutal. What did little Sims say? <laughs> she was. She's a big gooner. She's from the area. She was this after uh, or before the game that you? Spoke no, it's about? before the game. So yeah, oh, no, we. Okay. She did predict. I yeah. think a three or four nil win. So she obviously knows knows her stuff, doesn't she? Yeah. So um, it took yeah. Nostradamus. Yeah, it's five. Yeah. we'll get her yeah. back. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Nice one. Manchester City then, who had briefly regained top spot in the league before that Arsenal win, courtesy of a victory for themselves away at the King Power. Daniel, you went to this one mm-hmm. to witness uh, Kevin De Bruyne with that magnificent free kick. What else did you see? Yeah, it felt like a, a fairly significant win for City, not least because at the end of the game, Guardiola was, you very rarely see, he was sort of giving it the big Jurgen Klopp to the away end. I think winning without Haaland is, is clearly significant, but also winning against a Leicester team who put 10 men behind the ball, didn't really try and attack at all in the first half. I think Vardy had four touches in the first half and really frustrated City. The free kick is is outrageously good. It's We take for granted just how good that is. I mean, he has this ability, I wrote after the game, he has this ability with his free kicks to get the ball up to a height to clear the wall and then just kind of keep the ball at that height. It never doesn't dip down and give the goalkeeper a chance. It just stays exactly at that height and just flies into the top corner. It was it was magnificent and it felt like it was going to take that. So there was a huge amount of relief from Guardiola. Leicester made subs and, and were good for the last 15 minutes. The crowd were kind of annoyed they'd not tried that before, but you're kind of damned if you do and damned if you don't against City because if you try and attack them from the start, they can pass it around you. Mm. I mean, did you see this game, by the way? Yeah, I did catch a lot of it. Um, right. What I what I did also catch was Guardiola did one of those um, <laughs> those post match pep talks with the opposition player he did for Redmond famously a couple of years ago. He did it again with Madison, and ah. I, I was just struck by it again because I was like, why does he keep why does he keep doing this? And then it's like this clamor from the from the journalists at the game to ask the player what Pep said to them. Um, and it's like, I think the, the, the gist of what Madison said, I don't remember exactly what he said, but he said, um, you know, Leicester, why didn't Leicester attack the game uh, for the whole game as they did in the final 10 minutes? And it was just this sort of condescending, you guys are so good. You guys are so much better than this. Why don't you guys, oh, you guys really could have won this game, no matter how, like, could have been a 4-0, 5-0. Yeah. Luckily, it was a 1-0 for Leicester, but... You'd Pet love to really see him do it. that to Brendan then, no? Going pretty somewhere around Brendan says, come on, you guys are so good. Yeah. So yeah. good, so good. Yeah, no, I, I, I don't think Brendan would have taken too kindly to that. Um, mm. it's, it, it's just like, it, it's, it's a fine line between being condescending, but then also trying to make it seem like this is so hard. This, this was so much harder than it looked. Guys, we had 90% of the ball, but trust me, it was, it was so difficult. Um, so, yeah, that, 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 I can't, that doesn't really get any um, easier to watch, no matter how many you know, times it does it. I mean, I, I think also with Pet, I mean, it is difficult, but I think culturally he comes from a, a, a different place in terms of expressing positivity, mm. something that some of us might struggle a bit more yeah. with. And, and I, sometimes he genuinely has a love of the game which shines through. I mean, that, that's, that's maybe the, the more... It just, it just comes across like a really over enthusiastic supply teacher right right like that that's the kind of vibe that i'm you getting you can be somebody you can be a contender <laughs> yeah do you, do you know what yeah. it reminds me of for, right. for the players it's yeah. almost become a badge of honor if you get the post-match chat from mm. pep it's mm. it's almost like you've made it, it it's reminiscent i guess of the paul hollywood handshake isn't it, it oh. if you can get one of those then you then you know you must you must be uh you must be a decent player You're all so. over the culture <laughs> spectrum the, i was gonna say line. that's yeah on the tactics, very quickly, Le- Leicester, obviously, who they've been pressing brilliantly of late. I thought it, it 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 was quite clever of them, really, to sort of backtrack on that a little bit, and it did work. But for that moment of uh, astonishing brilliance from De Bruyne, it would have been a goalless draw. It was I, look, I noticed City's second lowest expected goals 
ranking of the season so far. So so it's a tactic that that did frustrate City. Hmm. City, who actually scored in this game, their first goal away from home in their last four such uh, fixtures. They'd had three on the road without scoring. Uh, curiously, how long is Haaland going to be out for? Any idea on that? Guardiola said after the game that he's not sure about midweek, although City don't need him in midweek mm. because they're obviously already top of the group and we'll see about Fulham. Uh, I suspect he'll be fit for Fulham. Uh, I mean, the fact that he's not going to the World Cup means they can probably, they don't feel any kind of lingering guilt towards any international manager. So I think he'll probably start. All right then. Okay, Spurs and Newcastle also winning. We'll hear about those teams later. But next up, it's Brighton. Hello, everyone. I'm Tony Jameson, the new host of the Football Manager Show, brought to you by The Athletic. Football Manager has quite frankly ruined my life, but I'd be completely lost without it. And if those words resonate with you, our podcast will be right up your street with FM23's release inching closer and closer. Every week, myself and Aaron Falloon, a.k.a. RDF Tactics, take a deep dive into our most recent saves. We speak to the makers of the game about how to crack it and take on wacky community challenges suggested by our loyal listenership. So if that sounds like a bit of you, make sure to subscribe to the Football Manager Show wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Here comes Brighton again now. Mendy beats the shot away from Enciso. Enciso's still going. Mendy's there once more. Yes! It's number four. That's the icing on Brighton's cake. Graham Potter and a growing cast of former Brighton personnel lured away uh, by Chelsea were back at the Amex on Saturday in what was for the supporters they'd left behind a pretty big deal. Potter hadn't lost since he'd moved to Chelsea. Brighton hadn't won since he departed. So, as we said on Thursday, wouldn't it be just like football if, you know, this time? And lo and behold, the Seagulls did the Blues 4-1 in what may well be the most emotionally satisfying win for any group of home supporters of the season anywhere. Andy Naylor joins us now. He was at the game. Andy, I mean, first of all, Brighton's first ever league win over Chelsea. In fact, I think I'm right in saying the Seagulls had never ever even taken the lead against them in a league game before. So what was it like? What was your favourite bit of this? Well, there was certainly a charged atmosphere. Um, I can't remember too many occasions when the atmosphere has been uh, like it was on Saturday. And also just the way Brighton started the match. Uh, They really ripped into Chelsea um, even before Leandro Trossard scored in the fifth minute Silver had headed the ball off the line twice they were 2-0 up within 15 minutes and Chelsea just looked frankly a bit all over the place a bit shell-shocked by it all and it was it turned into a really memorable afternoon the irony of it is that under Graham Potter He'd achieve results against the top sides that hadn't been achieved by the club before. Beaten Man City, beaten Liverpool, beaten Spurs, beaten Arsenal, beaten Manchester United. The one team that Brighton hadn't beaten of that big six was Chelsea. And here he is now as the Chelsea manager. And that uh, long record is finally broken. And it was this essentially... A Graham Potter win against Chelsea was it? Was it still his team, kind of running on on the momentum of his his management era, or are, are there changes that you can already see from De Zerbi's approach? No, it was a Roberto De Zerbi win in the sense that he outpotted Potter. That was mm. the really interesting thing about the game Saturday, because in Roberto's first five games in charge, the selection was consistent. He'd actually only made one change to the starting lineup across those five games. And there were signs of similarities with Graham in terms of the style from the back, changes within matches in personnel and formation. But they had real problems during the week uh, in the build-up to the game. Danny Welbeck out ill, who had been his sort of go-to number nine, despite the fact that he hadn't scored this season, had been playing really well. 
Joel Veltman, a member of that, that trio in the centre of defence with the captain Lewis Dunk and Adam Webster. They've played every game up until before, prior to Saturday. Uh, Lewis Dunk, Roberto revealed after the match, was a big doubt before the game, had a knee issue. So he, he didn't know what his team was going to be until Saturday morning. And it was one of those occasions, this used to happen countless times under Graham. You'd see the team sheet and think, hmm, who's playing where? What's the formation? And that's what happened on Saturday. You looked at the lineup because despite Danny Welbeck going, uh, being out, Dennis Undav, striker signed in January, was still on the bench. As it transpired, Leandro Trossard was the striker. Um, that was a role he first came across as a schoolboy way back in Belgium. Um, but he's very versatile. We've seen that with Leandro. But you had the, the inverted wingers with Kaoru Mitoma making his first Premier League start after an ankle injury. Solly March on the other side who gave Mark Cucurella, former Brighton defender, a torrid first half. And probably the most potter of all his choices was Pascal Gross at right back. Now, Pascal Gross had played there under Graham, basically a German midfielder. We'd never seen him in that position until Graham put him there. And De Zerbi put him there against Raheem Sterling. And you thought, my God, that, that's, that, that's a brave call. Because the one thing that pa Pascal's got so many attributes, the one thing he lacks is pace. So that looked like a bit of a gamble. But what actually happened in the match, because of the way he set up the side, um, the Chelsea wing-backs, Raheem Sterling and Pulisic on the other side, they didn't really want to go the other way. And that was really the space that Brighton exploited down both flanks with, the, with Purvis S. Dupinan on one side, full-back, Mitome in front of him, on the other side, Gross and Solly March. So um, it was a triumph, really for De Zerbi in, in what was a difficult build-up to the game. Yeah, brilliant stuff. Chelsea presumably are now tabling bids for Trossard and, and Gross. Are they? <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you, do, you do kind of think... Uh, somebody asked me the question actually on social media is, where does this end? Right. And the reality is, with Brighton's model, that... You, you don't really know where it's going to end because as far as they're concerned, they don't like standing in the way of people bettering themselves, providing certain conditions are met. And those conditions are that it's all done above board, that clubs come through the front door and they get what they regard as the appropriate compensation, whether that be in terms of fee for a player or, or the terms of the contract of staff. We've seen this happen, not just with Chelsea, Dan Ashworth to Newcastle, who was put on gardening leave, you may recall, for three months before Newcastle eventually agreed what Brighton deemed suitable compensation. He's gone there as sporting director. He was Brighton's first technical director. Ben White to Arsenal really started this chain of events, 50 million. Brighton have players who are going to attract interest in January and beyond. Trossard, one good example. Moises Caicedo, Ecuador uh, midfielder, he, he's been absolutely outstanding. And quite a few of these players are at the World Cup. So who knows what will happen in terms of how they do with their countries in those. So, yeah, basically the Brighton model is about accepting that and having forward planning to be able to cope with it, to have the next, the next Trossard, the next Caicedo in place. Mm. Well, it's worth it if you get afternoons like uh, they enjoyed at the Amex on Saturday. Andy, thank you so much for, for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. The reassuring tones of Andy Naylor there. You can read more of his thoughts on Brighton on theathletic.com, of course. Graham Potter saying that De Zerbi had left him looking a bit of a fool. Or possibly he himself had left himself looking a bit of a fool with his decision to go with Raheem Sterling and Christian Pulisic as wing-backs. Was it as simple as that? That looked like the biggest problem, but Chelsea have got a, a more general problem, which is that they're struggling to create chances unless they are incredibly open in midfield and, and expansive. And at that point, they kind of get picked off because 
if the wing backs are high, those outside central defenders get brought wide and Thiago Silva has an awful lot of work to do for a man of his age and a man who doesn't really have the pace to do that anymore. That that seemed like the problem on, on Saturday. And it's hard to quite to know how you'd look at that team and think Raheem Sterling as a wing back is is the answer. I can't quite fathom that. I mean, Potter's going into a situation of of a squad that he hasn't had a pre-season with and with players he, he didn't sign. But then there's been an awful lot of change. I think they've played three different formations over the last two games with the shift in shape they've done. And, you know, Loftus-Cheek ended up at right back on, on Saturday. And I don't fear for them, but I, I think it's a huge effort for a manager in mid-season to get a hold of a club. And, mm. and Potter's done really well to keep them unbeaten until this point. But I think probably results of slightly mass performances. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. Still going, gets the ball into penalty area to Bamford. Bamford takes it down for Somerville. Somerville! Yes! He's got! Oh, Crescentio Somerville stabs the ball into the back of the net! If the Brighton result looked like a major upset, what to call the late game at Anfield on Saturday, where, in the 89th minute, Crescentio Somerville scored the winner for Leeds away to Liverpool. Remarkable stuff, this. On the eve of his 21st birthday, a win they'd been waiting 21 years for, and the score was 2-1. <laughs> it was yeah, it was a quite a moment, wasn't it? It was, it, yeah, it's it's fitting, I guess. Really bad goal from Liverpool's point of view, but but a lovely little lovely little piece of play from Leeds. And, and yeah, two, two young players linking up. Obviously, the substitute, the, the young Italian, fed the ball into the box. And yeah, lovely little toe poke. It was, it was the most dramatic of, of climaxes, isn't it? Yeah, it just it, this misery for Liverpool goes on, doesn't it? It's, it's mm. just been such a car crash of a, of a season for them. They, they, we'll, we'll talk Liverpool later on, defend. Adrian. Mm. I want to talk Leeds. I want to talk Leeds. Mm. First win in nine matches for Leeds. Uh, first away win of the season, and this after Jesse Marsh was given four games to to save his job by himself. Remarkable. People running in. Uh, Mark Davidson says, for all the stick that's been handed to Jesse Marsh, I saw a team that was definitely playing for the manager. They all celebrated with him. They're definitely playing for Jesse Marsh. He is a likeable character, and and I think that he's, he has galvanised the group to some degree. It's just whether they they're good enough over the course of of, of the the long haul of the season. But yeah, no, they they had a good spirit. I was impressed with them in the game. They stuck in it. They didn't fall apart. They didn't do what we just said about Chelsea. They didn't leave those big gaps for Liverpool too often. They kept their shape and they forced, you know, they, they had to withstand a lot of pressure. And Meslier was it was easily the man of the match with, with a number of brilliant saves. But but they weren't carved open at will. Liverpool didn't, they couldn't look at themselves and say, we missed so many easy chances here. We've only got ourselves to blame. They were they were half chances that, that Melier sort of thwarted them from. I, I thought it was a really good collective team performance from from Leeds United. Um, yeah, and, and very few of us expected it, did we? So, um, yeah, well done to them. And, and a lot of these guys, a lot of the guys that shone were Premier League rookies to some degree. That Going away to Anfield isn't something that a lot of those players have experienced before. So I think the fact that they handled it so well is, is a really positive moment for them and, and the team. That's a good point because Liverpool's record in front of a crowd at Anfield was unsurpassable almost. April 2017, the last time they'd been defeated there with with the supporters present. Uh, some remarkable numbers about Liverpool now. It's the first time in 10 years that they've lost back-to-back games against teams in the bottom three. They now have exactly the same record as they did in the Roy Hodgson season. As I mentioned earlier, they are now eight points from the Champions League positions and just five from the bottom three. My word. 
They've got a huge game coming up against Napoli midweek, although both teams already qualified from that group. And then a huger one next Sunday away at Spurs. Crikey. Any other thoughts on Liverpool and any fresh reasons why it's gone wrong or why it went wrong? Obviously, it didn't start in the best of fashions with with Joe Gomez's uh, regrettable attempt at a back pass. Not really on anything uh, about Liverpool in terms of how much they're struggling. It's just more to do with the fact that I find it maybe mildly amusing that this has kind of happened after the 9-0 thumping they gave to Bournemouth. Speaking purely as a Bournemouth uh, correspondent, <laughs> that was probably the most demoralising game from a Bournemouth perspective I've watched. From any perspective, really, um, mm. you, there's not much. <laughs> there's not much you could say after that. And Liverpool were scoring from chances that you wouldn't necessarily expect a team to normally score from. Essentially, low XG chances. Um, but no, they were they were they absolutely thumped them, and it seemed like they turned a corner then. Even watching the, the game against Leeds uh, on the Saturday night, it seemed like even with Salah's goal, you had uh, Trent Alexander-Arnold and Robertson like pushing up into the box and getting forward in how they were doing at Liverpool's pump. The cross early for, for Salah's goal, the original cross from uh, Trent Alexander-Arnold goes in, doesn't meet anyone, goes all the way to the other side to, 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 to Robertson. So you've got that kind of full-back to full-back flow going on. And then Robertson knocks the cross in for Salah. And I'm thinking, right, cool, this is minor blip or major blip, however you want to put it. And I just thought of think like it's it's becoming a bit difficult to figure out how Liverpool go from one point off the Premier League, how many finals were they in last season, to letting teams in the bottom three, I guess, take points off them. It's it's remarkable. I don't know. I can't really put my finger on it. <laughs> they have no defensive-minded players in form, do they? That is for sure, and not very many on the pitch. I noticed. I I think that four-four-two diamond, which was the the shape in this game. Makes sense if you want to use your fullbacks and, and and make them the key men in the game, but but if you look at that starting lineup with with Elliot and Thiago Alcantara as the sort of wide midfielders, they only really had three defensive players in the team: the two centre backs, Van Dijk and Gomez, and Fabinho in front, and and all three are struggling badly for form at the moment. And when you you're asking Harvey Elliott to 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 slide across and cover a wing back or or Thiago on the other side. I, I don't think that's ideal, if I'm being honest. And, and that's part of the reason why teams, when they, they turn the ball over, they're able to go from one end of the pitch to the other very, very easily at the moment against Liverpool. And yeah, they're just um, not enough players on the pitch that are, that are playing well out of possession, mm. is my assessment. Well, indeed. Leeds are now 15th, four points behind Liverpool. Closing in. Napoli midweek, Spurs next Sunday. Let's have a word about Spurs because you caught them, Ahmed, at the Vitality Stadium Saturday at three o'clock in what must have been a pretty disheartening game again for the Bournemouth fans. Yeah, you had a, a Bournemouth got off to a really good start in that game um, with a really nice counter-attacking performance. There were question marks over whether Dominic Solanke would start the game. He hobbled off um, injured uh, in, the, in, the, in the game prior against West Ham on the Monday. And um, Gary O'Neill started both Solanke and Kiefer Moore up top uh, to make Bournemouth some, something of a 5-3-2. And uh, it was interesting because Marcus Tavernier, who's usually a, a, a left winger, played as a right wing back. But definitely was more of a right winger in sort of the first half, getting forward when, when the opportunities uh, presented themselves. But what I was more sort of encouraged by was how quiet Bournemouth's defenders or Bournemouth's whole team kept Son and Kane, you know, two of Spurs' most attacking players. And obviously Conte did put out a very heavily rotated side because they've got their Champions League exploits to worry about as well midweek. Mm. But um, it, it, the, the tide of the game changed as soon as those, those, those sort of... Um, we started to see Bentancur, Eric Dyer come on. And when, when, I guess, Bournemouth went two goals up, Gary O'Neill took that as an opportunity to sit back and invite all that pressure on. And then that allowed Spurs to get their foot on the ball properly, build that territory. And I think they had their most corners in a, in a game all season. And two of the goals, the, 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 the equaliser and the, and the winner, both of those came from, uh, from, from corners. So it was, um, yeah, it's, 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 it leaves a bit of taste in the mouth. But I guess... With perspective, the biggest takeaway from that is that, you know, Gary O'Neill took this team over. I mentioned the 9-0 and mm. the fact that Bournemouth fans are feeling like they could have taken, they could have done more to a Champions League side like Spurs, a Premier League winning manager like Conte. Uh, the fact that they're going toe-to-toe and taking this team to the brink is perhaps the biggest example of how far O'Neill has taken this team. Very true. Spurs had 19 corners 
I believe, mm. in this game, mm. which is a lot. We'll talk more about Tottenham in a second, but uh, various questions that people have uh, written in with. Uh, Ando Teraldi says, are Bournemouth then actually any good? And also, who are the b- best Bournemouth player? I'm not sure I've been able to work out either, despite their remarkable form under Gary O'Neill. And Ben Hayes would like an update on the takeover stroke managerial search there. Okay, so the first one, are Bournemouth any good? Yes, mm. uh, I think they've shown that quite a few on quite a few occasions. Um, I'd say the best player is probably Dominic Solanke. It's weird because I wrote a piece on this after the Fulham game. Mm. He he scored thirty goals in all competitions last year. For me, he arrived uh, back into the Premier League this season as the marksman that everyone tipped him to be when he was in Chelsea's academy. He's, uh, but he's, he's got more to his game. He's not just a sort of the striker who can you know, put the finishing touches on things. He's using that extra attention he's getting from opposition defenders and he's feeding teammates with it. And we saw that against Leicester in the 2-1 win there. We saw that in the 2-0 draw against Fulham. Uh, we even saw that against Nottingham Forest um, in, in the final goal where he chased down McKenna uh, and slid the ball into the box for Jane Anthony to score the winner in that turnaround. So, you know, we're seeing different, just because he's got so much to his game and I just think he's, got, he's still got so much more to develop, Dominic Solanke. Yeah, he's, I think he's probably the standout player for me. But, you know, you can't forget guys like, you know, Philip Billing, who's a unicorn midfielder. He can play. He started the, the, the season uh, in defensive midfield with Parker, you know, playing as the, as, as the sort of six leading sort of tackles and interceptions and blocks and clearances, all that sort of thing in the team. Uh, and now he's sort of playing as a number 10, floating in behind uh, Dominic Solanke. Their, their relationship in, in, the, in the attacking boxes is something to behold, really. It's a bit weird, uh, considering Ahmed, they're two... Ahmed, what's a, what's a unicorn midfielder? Thank you, thank you, Adrian. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I should have elaborated. A unicorn midfielder for me is someone who can play as the 6, the 8, the 10, who can play all of those, um, okay. all of those positions. So I, I call them a unicorn. Yeah. Sorry, sorry, I should have, I should have elaborated there. No, but no, no. that's, that's, uh, yeah, that's a unicorn midfielder. I don't, I mean, you always see certain players. Like I remember when Kai Havertz joined Chelsea, he was sort of dubbed as a player who can play all midfield roles, and I think that's, uh, it's kind of been debunked now. Um, but no, he is definitely someone who, to a, to a really good standard, can play all of those. We've seen that this season, starting the game, he, he'll be almost in a front two with Solanke at times. And then when Bournemouth is trying to uh, close out the game and see it out, he'll definitely drift into the sort of uh, the middle third and then the defensive third. Billing is Billing fascinates me as a player because at, at Huddersfield he was it was so obvious he had the kind of bags of talent and was sort of get, uh, probably getting frustrated by what was happening around him and needed the move. Uh, and there was a sense that maybe his you know he, his head wasn't quite at it at Huddersfield in the last few months. Uh, and as you say, he he has this. Uh, ability to almost play like a Jefferson Lerma and just be this destroyer in midfield but he's also incredibly skillful isn't he like he's a dribbler he's a passer he's a tackler he can do everything you just kind of need to get him focused into one position don't you because he does try and do everything if if he's not focused but he's fascinating Billing I think I think he could maybe not now maybe but I think he could have played at the absolute top level I think he's Mm. really really good He's he's weird. He he's six foot five, six foot six, but he plays like he's five foot six. <laughs> it's really weird. And when his sort of flicks and tricks don't come off because he's sort of ungainly in that way, it just looks really bad. So it just looks like he's not trying, or it just it, yeah. Yeah, it sticks out like a sore thumb. But no, he's um yeah he's he, he really is a, a really remarkable player. Credit to Jonathan Woodgate actually, who actually started. Who was the first manager to play him in a more advanced role as a number ten. Uh, I don't think he gets much credit for that, but he's he's thriving in that role now. All right. Uh, Ahmed, briefly, the, the second question then about the takeover and also Gary O'Neill's future. Where, where do we stand on that? So the takeover is at its final stages. It's just a matter of it being ratified by the Premier League's owners and directors test. Um, my understanding is that uh, official documentation for that was sent by Bournemouth uh, a couple of weeks back now. So and that, that's a process that takes anywhere between four and six weeks. So, I mean, it, it, these things are kind of done behind closed doors and they need their time to be sort of done properly. So it, it, there's not really an exact time frame as to when we can expect to hear. I guess in, in the next couple of weeks is probably as, as, as close as I can get to that. With regards to the manager situation, uh, I've just got a piece on this up on The Athletic this morning. And essentially, Gary O'Neill will be the interim until uh, the Everton game, which is on November 12th, which takes Bournemouth up to the World Cup break at which point they'll be looking to appoint a permanent manager, an external permanent manager, 
and I've been told and reliably informed that if they have one person in mind, although they didn't, they wouldn't tell me who. Oh. Um, and that's uh, yeah, it's, it went from a list of uh, candidates to to one person they have in mind. Uh, and you can you can already imagine Bournemouth fans are. <laughs> I've, in, I've left my mentions on Twitter inundated with who they think it is. Who do they think um, it is, Ahmed? Uh, one of them is Bodo Glimp's manager, Knutsen. Sean, uh, there was a report uh, a couple of weeks back that said Sean Dyche had rejected uh, the job, which was uh, untrue. Bournemouth were never interested in him. Uh, Chris Wilder, but just before he uh, departed from Middlesbrough, uh, he was linked as well, but there, there was nothing in that as well. Um, but no, this is, this is something that Bournemouth are keeping very close to their chest. Um, but no, as things stand, O'Neill will be the interim until the World Cup period, and then um, the club will want to appoint a manager in that sort of four-week right. during the World Cup. So they can use that as a sort of a second preseason for the new manager to kind of assess the strengths and weaknesses, implement their, their, their style of football and all the rest of it. Mm, indeed. One change they have made, though, at the Vitality Stadium, and that is their entrance music, which mm. used to be Power by Kanye West. But because of his recent anti-Semitic comments and general wrongheadedness, they've ditched that. Well done, Bournemouth. And they're coming out to... I mean, massively underrated tune. You won't know it. What's it called? Seven Nation Army by... <laughs> you absolutely oh, done, wow. You've absolutely done me there, James, because I was genuinely thinking, like, oh, this is interesting. Yeah, what have they gone with? <laughs> wow. Absolutely. Yeah, it could have been, they could have gone with that... Which, again, No one's actually... Um, I don't think anyone's used Sloop John B as entrance music yet, so maybe we oh, can... Yeah. Forest come out to it's not uh, just can't get enough. It's, it's they um, do well. They do a kind of mega mix of all the songs they've ever come out to, going back to oh. twenty years, and then obviously they do like Mull of Kintyre's the right, yeah, the big thing pre kickoff. The, uh, the they could have gone with the Z Cars theme, which is so popular at other grounds, but no Seven Nation. What did you have, Adrian? Did they have walkout music in your day? <laughs> do you know what? <laughs> Violins. I don't know. Probably, I think just everyone just just politely applauded. You know that, that was just right. what happened. But um, now I can't. I can't remember the walk on music. But what I do remember is is loving the Arsenal tradition oh. of effectively leaving the opposition uh, to 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 do what they wanted. And we, regardless, home or away, would always go to the centre circle and applaud all all four sides of the ground. That was a very Arsenal tradition, which has kind of been removed a little bit by this. The fact that you have to line up as if it's a cup final and, and, and listen to, you know, uh, I don't know. I don't know what the anthem is. The Premier League anthem. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that one. Yeah, yeah, that one. Excellent. All right. Ahmed, you mentioned the, the changes that Conte had made for the team ahead of that huge game in the Champions League on Tuesday when supposedly away at Olympic Marseille needing a point to make it through to the last 16. The last Premier League side still waiting on their knockout place. Marseille must win, but all four teams in the group are hoping to qualify. So it's a it's a pretty tense encounter. And to, to give us a bit of an idea of what kind of opposition Marseille are going to be, how tough a task this is going to be for Tottenham, let's go now to our correspondent for all things Ligue 1 and more, Julien Laurent. Jules, a decisive game for both Spurs and Marseille on Tuesday. But Marseille, a team who've lost three straight games and then only picked up a point at the weekend, so one point from their last four in the league, a team who Spurs beat 2-0 last time they met, sounds like this should be relatively easy. Yeah, it sounds like it. I don't think it will be. But you're right, it sounds like it. Well, certainly Spurs are going to be favourite for many reasons. One, because they have better players uh, and a better manager. Antonio Conte, then Igor Tudor, although, as we always say, they obviously know each other really well. They play together for Juve. I think they've got quite um, a strong relationship. Uh, also, Spurs have to be the favourite because even if Spurs are going through, um, like, let's say an average patch, uh, Marseille is even worse because they've now lost three and draw one in the last four Liga matches. They lost, obviously, in Frankfurt last week as well in the Champions League. And this game on Saturday... Away at Strasbourg is a game that they should have won. They were 2-0 up at halftime and cruising, really. Igor Tudor said after the game that they should have been 5-0 up at halftime. And then in the second half, they just let it slip completely. And the solidity that they used to have defensively earlier in the season is not there anymore. 
They've got injuries like Eric Bailly, who I think they, they really, really miss. But still, you, you would expect a by five with the press that Marseille put in the game to be much more solid and, and much stronger than what they were against Strasbourg, who scored two late goals. The second one in deep in, in injury time from Kevin Gamero, who's Paris born and bred and former PSG player. Just not a good rehearsal before hosting Spurs. Absolutely. With all of that, though, why do you think Marseille might be a real danger to Spurs? There's a few things here. One is the Velodrome, of course, despite the, uh, the Virage Nord being closed because of the sanction from UEFA after what happened during, against Frankfurt, the Velodrome and all the crowd troubles. They will still manage somehow to pack 55,000 uh, fans in there uh, and the atmosphere is going to be very, very hostile. I suspect all the way from the way the, the Spurs bus is going to make his way from the hotel to the stadium and, and of course, inside the ground. So a very hostile atmosphere. Um, Igor Tudor will have to change his philosophy slightly, which I'm not sure he will do because he's a very stubborn man. So I suspect he would want to play like they always play, which is high press, high intensity from higher up the pitch, like they did, for example, in the reverse fixture back in London. Mm. Although I think this will suit Spurs. We, we know that when Spurs have a lot of the ball, they don't always know what to do with it. They're not really sure what to do with it. They're the team that scored the most on set pieces in, in, the, in the Premier League for a reason. So I think Marseille and Tudor will be very inspired to basically wait for them, play deep, even at the Velodrome, and then hit them on the counter with Arit, with Alexis, Cengizunda, with those kind of players who can really cause damage on the break to the Spurs defence. However, I think, I fear that Tudor will just play their, their normal game, which I really feel will, will, will suit Spurs much more. Okay. Jules, you referenced there the trouble that happened in the recent home match against Frankfurt. What are the dangers off the field then to uh, Spurs supporters? It's a game that's been sort of classified by French police as, as high risk. Like the PSG Maccabi Haifa was last week, like Marseille Frankfurt was at the start of the, the Champions League, which had crowd troubles. I think there will be a lot of policemen, I think 800 or 900, something like that, for the 1,600 Spurs fans who are going to travel, I, I believe the club told me on, on Friday. You have to be careful if you're a Spurs fan traveling there, I won't lie. Uh, it might be all fine, but we saw last season in Europe, this season already in Europe, some troubles in the city centre in Marseille, the, the day before the game, on the day of the game as well. Usually we say don't, you know, don't show your colours and don't show your shirt. However, if you're in the city centre of Marseille speaking English, I think it's going to be pretty easy to find out who you support. So this is a great game, really. This is a fantastic game for, for the two sets of fans, for the two clubs. You win, you go through pretty much. It's a final. So let's just hope that on and off the pitch, everything goes well. I would not want the Spurs coach, the players coach to be attacked uh, like we've seen too often in Marseille, but in, in other parts of Europe this season. I would not want Spurs fans to not feel safe, you know, sightseeing on the day of the game in the afternoon. I don't know, uh, walking to the velodrome on the, on the evening of the game either. So I think the, the French police are going to really be very, very careful there and very cautious and and I would think that they've got everything in place to make sure that for all the Spurs fans traveling from wherever they're traveling, that it's a safe environment for them. But yeah, there's always, there's always risk. And when I said it's a great game, of course, it's a final. It's a great game. For, but it's also because of what's at stake, which is continuing your adventure in the Champions League. It's also a very high tense game because you lose, you're out. So I can, I can also see the tension that are on the pitch, but also between the fans. Julian Laurent, you can hear more of in Tuesday's European edition of the Totally Football Show. Spurs, of course, furious after their last Champions League game when the goal which would have taken them through to the knockout stages got disallowed because of a offside call on Harry Kane. Interesting Jules' take there that Marseille shouldn't press Spurs but should leave them the pitch to play with because they won't know what to do with it. Isn't that exactly where things went wrong? for Bournemouth when they tried doing that, Ahmed? Yeah, no, I, I, I guess that that's a very good point, yeah. But I, at the same time, the quality that Spurs were able to bring on, I think, definitely helps in that. Bournemouth have been able to weather such storms in the past. Mm. In fact, I think that goal that Ryan Sessegnon scored Spurs first on Saturday was only the third that Bournemouth have conceded from open play under Gary O'Neill. Um, so no, they, they, they've been defensively like very secure, but I just think the quality in the end told and those um, lapses in concentration from set plays. I mean, Spurs aren't very good at the moment. So, I mean, mm. that has to fa be factored in here. You know, they're, Conte's sticking with, for example, players like 
Emerson Royale, who, who don't really seem to offer anything and are becoming pretty unpopular. It, it feels very Nuno to me, where at the start results were pretty good and performances weren't that great, but nobody really cared because they were winning the games. And then over time, and obviously under Nuno, this was a far more accelerated process, the results started to tail off and the performances sort of stayed at the level that they always were. And at some point, that's going to become a problem. You know, I know they beat Bournemouth on Saturday and yes, they did take advantage of the fact that Bournemouth sat back and, and look, look, let's face it, Marseille have better defenders than Bournemouth do, so it might work. But they just look out of ideas with the ball. There doesn't really seem to be an awful lot of proactive creativity other than, as you say, just sort of set pieces on Saturday. It's, it's all a bit, I don't know. It's just... you, you mentioned the word creativity. <laughs> Kane and Son are the, are the guys that score the goals, but they're also the guys that create all of the chances. The mm. numbers one and two when it comes to chances created. Who's number three? Huyberg. Huyberg hmm. is the third most creative player this season for Tottenham. I, th- I think that in itself, even though he's improving and he's a good all-round player, it tells you what they're missing. Right. Well, they're also missing a, a man named Richarlison who scored both of the goals when they beat Marseille in the match day one encounter. Spurs, intriguingly, have failed to score in any of their last three away games in the Champions League. They don't necessarily have to on Tuesday, but it might be nice. Anyway, we'll have more preview stuff about the final match day of this Champions League group stage and all the European results and things in Tuesday's European edition of the Totally Football Show. All right, next up, let's get on to some of the other intriguing things that happened this weekend. Newcastle's win over Aston Villa, Diego Costa with the red card, all that stuff coming up next. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. We're sponsored for this episode of The Totally Football Show by Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform helping you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify's there to help you grow. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, which is up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. Plus, you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And what's more, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 support is there to help your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Now, because you listen to The Totally Football Show, you can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash totally, all in lowercase. So go to shopify.com slash totally to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's S-H-O-P-I-F-Y dot com slash totally. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Hey, listener. 4-0 for Newcastle over Aston Villa. That was Saturday, 3 o'clock. Late on Sunday, Man United with a 1-0 win over West Ham. You also had a draw 1-1 between Brentford and Wolves. No goals for Fulham and Everton. And a 1-0 win for Crystal Palace over Saints, who continue to veer wildly between good and bad results. What do you want to pick out of that lot? Is it is it Newcastle? Poirot's moustache, for example, writes in and asks, who do you think is coming second and third to Miggy Almiron for the Ballon d'Or next year? <laughs> He's in exceptional form, no? Brilliant, isn't he? Yeah, I, I think he's just scoring great goals as well. That's that's the thing. They're not not as if they're scruffy goals. He's he's a player that that within shooting range, whether it's twenty five, thirty yards out, he just he's backing himself. And he's doing he, what he always he always had talent, didn't he? But just backing just, himself. Oh, yeah, thank goodness. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, so what did you say? Sorry. No, I did. It wasn't entirely clear which consonant had led that word, and I was. <laughs> momentarily 
even more impressed than I than I was before. Um, but yeah. um yeah. As many goals as Erling Haaland in October. Wow. Yeah. yeah, they look a team, don't they? Newcastle, they do mm. look a team that that can stick around in the in the top top six. Obviously, they've got the best defensive record. One of the top goalkeepers as well this season in Nick Pope. He's been excellent, but yeah, no one's conceded fewer than Newcastle. And when you chuck in the fact that Almiron is playing the best football of his career, and you've got Callum Wilson doing everything he can to get on the plane to Qatar, showing that he, in my opinion, anyway, would be the best back up to Harry Kane in, in the World Cup finals. I think, you know, it's, it's a great formula for Newcastle at the moment. As for Villa, intriguing set of results for Aaron Danks as interim manager. 4-0 victory last weekend, 4-0 defeat this time round. Next up for Villa, it's Man United at home. Unai Emery will be, or should be in charge for that one. Speaking of Man United, a 1-0 win for them at home to West Ham. Cristiano Ronaldo and Harry Maguire were back for United uh, and so crucially at Old Trafford was David Moyes. Which had a bigger impact, do you think, of those factors? (laughs) Yeah, for those that don't know, David Moyes' record now as an away manager in the Premier League at Old Trafford has played 16-1-0, drawn four. And he's also got a wretched away record as West Ham manager in both spells away at big six clubs. Mm. But I I wanted to to give some love to Marcus Rashford, who has somehow been 24 years old apparently been out of form for about two years and scored 100 goals for Manchester United which is some effort given that he's been playing he was playing as a left winger for a majority of that and fed the kids at the same time yeah and fed the kids and and I do think that that has look there are some people in this country who will call that lefty virtue signaling and and use that as a kind of stick to football Marcus argument which couldn't be further from the truth but also within Manchester United's fan base there has been a lot of criticism for Marcus Rashford I think partly because he looked like he wasn't enjoying himself uh, and also I think because as a huge compliment to him they can understand the potential in him and they want him to be the best because he's a local lad and they want him you know they think he can be the next Wayne Rooney in terms of you know leading Manchester United as a forward and I'm so glad to see that kind of desire to win headers like the one on on Sunday because that's not something we've associated with Rashford over the last couple of years and I don't think it's his fault. I think he was played when he was injured. I think he missed pre-seasons. I think he's played under a number of managers, none of which have particularly helped him uh, in terms of you know his development. And I, th- I hope now... I don't think it's any coincidence that now Manchester United look like they've got something sustainable building. So does, so does Rashford, basically. Mm. And he came out and spoke with kind of disarming frankness about how he's been feeling of late afterwards with the with, with the with the presentation uh, team it's, it's great the way that's happening now managers coming out and having a bit of a chat with the with the with the presenter and pundit a fantastic change to coverage should mention as well that along with all those other things Marcus Rashford has also written a couple of books with Carl Anker which can't be easy. Let's, let's yeah. <laughs> I love the timing of those runs as well. Mm, so that yeah. he really did embarrass uh, Tyler Kerr for for the goal, the way that he read the flight of the ball, and and you know who he reminded me of there, and and someone that maybe should be not a role model for him because he's a great player in his own right, Marcus Rashford, but. It reminded me of Sadio Mane, like as in mm. like a player that, that can be a left-sided forward of the ilk of Mane and what he produced at, at Liverpool. He could be that guy for Manchester United. I, I do think he is much better coming off the left-hand side, much, much better. And and yeah, with that sort of drive and purpose, and, and as he pointed out himself, he's in a better headspace now. I do think he can really kick on and... and it's the- um, to say Adrian it's it's the nature of that left-sided role isn't it because he's definitely better doing that but there were times under Mourinho when he was playing as basically almost like an auxiliary left back kind of having to track back and there were times under Rangnick when the ball was being moved so slowly that he never really got space to run into like it, that system makes Rashford doesn't it he's not a you know he's not a, an individual of the superstar talent that he's gonna you know drag a team on but he is a brilliant footballer that if the system is right for him, he will absolutely delight in space and time in the box. And they've just got to make that work for him. Mm. Meantime, Ten Hag has sorted out things at the back quite remarkably. That penalty from Jorginho last weekend, 
or the weekend before. That's the only goal United have conceded in their last six matches in all competitions. Yeah, and a big part of that, I think, was Diego Dallo. He put in a really good defensive performance, a couple of crucial interventions at the last, uh, just to sort of head balls in behind for corners. Um, a, a defensive performance, which I think United fans have been waiting for, for Diego Dallo. Uh, it seems like um, Eric Ten Hag doesn't really trust Anwar Bissaka as the other right back. And so the bulk of the games have come, uh, have landed at Diogo Dello's feet. I think um, it was weird. You, t- you guys touched on the left-sided superiority that um, United like to build up with, with Shaw and Rashford and Fernandez drifting over there and Eriksen. Um, and that leaves the right-hand side almost completely vacant. And we saw Diogo Dello wasn't necessarily um, holding the width on that side. He was tucking inside slightly, almost as an auxiliary sort of midfielder, as you see from Pep's Manchester City. But it was a role that he took well. Um, and I think he, he, he didn't really put a foot wrong. And a quick shout out to Harry Maguire as well, who's, um, he think had a pretty shaky game to start off with, but towards the end of a, a crucial block to deny um, Saeed Benrahma's uh, marauding run into the box, which then I think was a, Declan Rice's rasping shot, which nearly went into the final, final minutes. So yeah, no, uh, grew into the game, Maguire. A difficult start, but I think he's um, slowly finding his feet again. Magnificent. And great use of the word rasping as well. I haven't heard that one in ages. Uh, Brentford Wolves. I must admit, I didn't see the whole thing, but the highlights made it look pretty fun. You had two exceptional goals. Ben Mee with a goal that was more f*** me. (laughs) And then Ruben Neves with a a, a kind of classic from his, his repertoire. And then Diego Costa... Getting, yes, his first ever Premier League red card. I think, I mean, we were all across this. No, you were, listener, weren't you? The fact that he, he was good at getting other people sent off. Was he actually quite good at getting himself sent off in this one? That was the kind of, the veiled, not that veiled, actually, suggestion by Alan Shearer on Match of the Day on Saturday, Saturday night. I hope that Diego Costa is sitting at home and thinking, thank God we didn't have VAR when I was at Chelsea (laughs) long ago. That's Uh, that's the difference, is it? Yeah, I think that's the difference because it was a VAR decision. It wasn't spotted by the officials. Um, And yeah, I I mean, we talked last week about him uh, looking like a, you know, Tim Spears was on here talking about Costa as a pantomime version of himself. And we really have got all the bad bits without any of the good bits. Uh, I mean, Those are the good bits. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, a- apart from for Wolves, yeah, and right. and he was only useful as a as a unit in the team because they they clearly don't want to pick Huang, who they are now going to have to pick for at least three games because Costa's mm. suspended. Yeah, three game ban, so he won't feature again for Wolves until after the World Cup. Diego Costa. Hmm. That is weird. I got that notification in my phone to say that Diego Costa ninety seventh minute red card, and I just went, oh, headbutt. I didn't have to look at it. I just knew. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you were. Okay, also, as I mentioned this weekend, there was the goalless draw between Fulham and Everton. Fulham, do you know how many shots they had in that game? I do, yes. Yeah, Yeah, 24. I mean, not sure how many of those were on target, but certainly Williams was. And Jordan Pickford's save on that, good Lord. They didn't have more shots than that in any game in their last Premier League season and actually only beat it twice in the Championship last season. So that's kind of proof of the confidence and their determination to to have shots. That Pickford save, by the way, is it didn't really feel like it got the love on the commentary. I think because there was a a corner came in and he made Mm. another save, but it was astonishing. He's kind of point-blank range and yet he still manages to completely extend himself to tip it over the bar. That's one of the best Premier League saves I've ever seen, genuinely. It was for the... He wasn't expecting from there. You're not expecting William to get that much height on it because he kind of sort of stabbed down into the ball, but still got power. And he sort of pulls off a sprawling save that you'd expect if the shot was from outside the box, not from like three yards away. Mm. It's amazing. It was good, wasn't it? He's been brilliant. And and Everton, there are two teams, okay, that have not conceded more than two goals in the game yet so far in the Premier League season. Um Everton are one of those teams, remarkably, not conceding more than two goals in a game. The other are West Ham. So two teams that are not necessarily at the top of the table, but they just stay in games. And I, and I think for, in Everton's case, it's, it's a lot of it's down to pick for this season. Very nice. Very nice. Crystal Palace with a 1-0 win over Southampton. Are we going to spend the entire season trying to make up our minds about those two teams? <laughs> I've made my mind up on Lianco. Can I just say that? Yeah, yeah, please. A thug. Absolute thug. Um, I hated watching him against Arsenal the weekend before because he was just trying to 
I don't know, fight. fight. Whoever came in his direction, normally Gabriel Jesus, he was so aggressive, so plain to the crowd, Lianco. Um And in this game, by all accounts, he he targeted Zaha for the heavy treatment. So it was really satisfying uh, that, that Zaha tracks back, whacks him over, knocks him to the ground, and then helps to set up the winning goal. And I thought that was, um, yeah, one of the most pleasing moments of the, of the weekend. Uh, I've just got it. I've just got a thing against Lianco um, at the moment. Southampton with that defeat lying just one point above the bottom three again, but level with Leeds and Aston Villa, and only one point ahead of them are Bournemouth, and only two points ahead of them are West Ham and, yes, Everton. So it's ever so tight in the bottom half. Who's going to go down, Ahmed? Um... I'm going to have to go with Forrest. Sorry, Daniel. No, um, I'm trying my hardest to avoid naming Bournemouth here, as you can probably tell. Um, you can't name Forrest and then not name You can't <laughs> not name Bournemouth. Bournemouth are up in 14th. Yeah, yeah. one's about a point away from each other, aren't they? That's yeah, the well. Um, I'm going to say Leeds as well. Oh, yeah? Um, Why? Yeah. Uh, I, think, I just think they're too... They're too chaotic under Marsh. I think their best performances um, come, uh, come against teams which are on paper better than them. They mm-hmm. were unlucky not to come away with a win or anything in, in the Arsenal game. And I think they, were, um, they did well to come away with a win against Liverpool as well. But mm-hmm. I think in the games uh, against teams in and around them, they'll struggle. I think so. I think they'll, they'll be in there as well. And, OK, cool. I'll say Bournemouth as well. Go on. Why not? Why not? You pulled my arm. All right. Sorry, I, I kind of sprang that on you. Um, but it is, as, you know, as we say, very, very tight between Leicester in 18th and Everton in 12th. The space of one result, essentially three points. So, hmm. Pretty tight at the other end, too. That's why it's such an exciting season. We'll have more on it when we return on Thursday, uh, previewing the penultimate round of Premier League action before we break. For the business in Qatar. Before that, as mentioned on Tuesday, Jules will be back with James and Rafael and Alvaro to look ahead to the final round of Champions League group stage action and all the stuff that happened over the weekend. And boy, was there lots of that. For now, it's many, many thanks to you, Ahmed, to Adrian, to Daniel, producer Charlie, and you, listener. Mm. Do hope you have a splendid week and we'll catch up with you again soon. You've been listening to the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on the Athletic app and discover bonus content by following the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Find out the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Athletic.